You're listening to the Gates Church Podcast. For more information or to support this ministry, please visit thegates.org. Good morning, everyone. Thank you for joining us today. It's not only Remembrance Day, but it's also the day that we conclude our sermon series, When You Pray. It's a study we've been doing through the Lord's Prayer, so I'm glad that you could join us for that. And uh, with it being the conclusion, you guys could probably guess that we'll be going through the last line of the prayer, which reads, deliver us from evil, or as some translations render it, and what we'll be leaning towards this morning, deliver us from the evil one. But as always, we're going to read through the full prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray, and then we'll get into it. So if you want to turn with me to Matthew 6, we're going to be starting at verse 9 and going to verse 13. Matthew 6, 9 to 13. Jesus says, This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And give us today our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Amen. So when I was younger, in my preteens, I guess you could say, that's what, that's what my 10-year-old son calls it. He's like, I'm in my preteens. I don't know what that is. But um, I guess when I was in my preteens, uh, my parents bought my older sister a cat. Its fur was completely white. It was, it was completely white. And because it looked so pure, uh, my sister named him Angel. So her cat's name was Angel. Unfortunately, he was the complete opposite of an angel. And I'm sorry if you're a cat person. I don't mean to offend you this morning. Um, I wasn't really a cat person then, uh, but after growing up with Angel in the house, I'm certainly not one now, nor <laughs> will I ever be. And I don't understand cat people now. Um, because my sister's cat was pretty much the devil, okay? Angelic on the outside, you know, pure white, just looked really, really angelic, but evil incarnate on the inside. (laughs) And I'm not kidding, on top of all the attitude and entitlement that that cats usually have that we come to expect from cats, right? He'd he'd also go in my closet and uh, pee on my clothes. One time I was on on the bus on the way to school being like, what's that smell? It was me cat peed on my coat. His fur was always stuck to my pants, and this was like the 90s, so I always had black pants, you know, because trying to be cool. White fur all over it. He'd steal my toys like there was playthings, right? Uh, quite often he'd get into this crazy psycho mood where he'd ride, where he'd, he'd sit on top of the couch so that he could pounce on my dog as she ran by and then trap my dog with, with, with his paw on her neck. And then one day in particular, I was, I was walking down the hall um, in her house to my room, just minding my own business, you know, doing my own thing, when all of a sudden I hear this patter-patter-patter behind me. And then right before I hear this patter-patter, and then, and then right after that I feel this pain in the, in the back of my left leg, claws digging into the back of my leg, which caused me to cry out in angry, and I fell down in pain. And, and of course, I immediately looked back only to find Angel 
the devil himself, had, had pounced on me unawares and ripped a hole not only through my flesh, but through my pants as well. It just ripped a huge hole right through my pants. And then, and then, of course, he took off running around the corner to escape any consequence. Like it didn't even happen. And, you know, thinking about that, isn't that exactly what the Bible warns us to watch out for? Cats? No, I'm just kidding. For, <laughs> for the devil himself. Right? First Peter 5, 8 says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And this is one of the very reasons that, that Jesus teaches us to pray, deliver us from the evil one. He's prowling around like a lion, ready to devour, looking to catch you unawares, looking for that stepping stone, a way in. He's he's scheming, deceiving, creating doubt, accusing us in our guilt and sin, trying to to trip us up or find a a way to turn us from God. So by by teaching us to pray this part of the prayer, Jesus is teaching his disciples that this is a, a very real danger, a very real problem, one that we're battling against Daily. It's a spiritual battle we're battling against daily. A threat Jesus' disciples saw firsthand as well during Jesus' ministry when he's casting out demons and doing all that kind of stuff. But as I mentioned uh, back in our Easter series when we, we talked about this, there's always some of us that are completely on board when, when we're talking about demons and, and Satan and all that spiritual stuff. But, but then again, there are always some that aren't. Um, this is probably due to being turned off by those that sensationalize it, right? We sensationalize this stuff. Or, or because our, our Western culture, and let's be honest, even the past, like Gothic and Renaissance and medieval cultures, have, have portrayed demons and Satan and hell and even angels in, in ways that our educated and civilized minds, you know, find difficult to grasp or believe in. And to top it off, more often than not, they're, they're portrayed in rather silly ways. I mean, just watch any cartoon or any horror movie, about demons and, and devil possession and exorcisms and all that stuff, right? They're usually pretty ridiculous and, and pretty far-fetched. Um, you know, you can't read the Bible and watch one of those movies and be afraid because it's just like, this is, I don't understand what's happening, right? These, these portrayals have almost turned them into mythical or, or fictional concepts as well. And so it's hard for us sometimes to talk about them or recognize them as a reality. Regarding the topic of spiritual beings, John Mark Comer writes, These two words, angels and demons, they come with a truckload of cultural baggage. We think of angels as blonde Swedish supermodels with a 10-foot wingspan. And and we think of demons as little cartoon characters with horns and a pitchfork larking about on Bugs Bunny's shoulder. Neither of these lazy caricatures does justice to their reality. But they are real, not fake, not non-entities, not a myth from a superstitious age. Again, just to emphasize the point, uh, check out this recent rendering of, of Satan in this new movie that, that I saw. I didn't watch it, but I just saw it on Netflix. Oh, you can hardly see it. Oh, well. All right, we need a new bulb. It'll be put in soon. But anyways, you see the pitchfork. You see he's like, like you know, and, and, and you're probably thinking, why would, what's our pastor doing? Why would he put Satan on the screen? Uh, but that's the point. It's not Satan. This is this is super cheesy, right? It's it's supposed to be scary or something, but but it looks like it's straight out of Looney Tunes. That's not what he that's not what he looks like. If anyone saw this for real, they'd either laugh, right, or or they'd turn tail and run. But but no one would be deceived into listening to someone like that, right? So portraying or thinking of Satan this way is actually dangerous, because if we're we're only expecting a guy in in red tights and horns. 
We won't actually see him. Oh, wow. That's the uh, 30s, 1930s film version of Satan, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> Anyways, uh, we won't see him coming. You know, if we think of him that way, we won't see him coming when he actually does. And, and we'll be lazy in prayer because we're like, I'll, I'll never see someone like that, right? We'll just be lazy in prayer when, when it comes to uh, the evil one, right? So in actuality, though, like my sister's cat, it says he looks like an angel. He looks like an angel because he was one. God made him with purpose. God, he, he's a created being. God created him. God made him with purpose. He made him good, gave him authority until he turned from God in pursuit of his own will. Ezekiel 28 gives us a more accurate picture of Satan. It says this about him throughout Ezekiel 28. It says, you are the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You are the anointed cherub who covers. I established you. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created. That doesn't sound like a red horn dude with a pitchfork, does it? But yet, even though God made him as a seal of perfection, Satan turned his eyes away from his creator, and he began to admire the creation himself. God says to Satan in Ezekiel 28, 17, it says, you corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. So according to the Bible, he became proud and exalted himself, a desire to rule was born in him. He wished to, to put himself in God's place. He whispered lies until he had a third of the angelic host of heaven on his side. Right, And after being cast out of heaven, he influenced mankind to do the same in the garden. So this, this is who Satan or Lucifer or the evil one or whatever you want to call him, this is who he really is. He's a wolf in sheep's clothing. And he's pursuing his own kingdom, his own will, his own glory, his own will. And I want to recognize that some translations do choose to interpret this passage as deliver us from evil instead of the evil one. But I argue that in the end, it amounts to the same thing. And and theologian G.I. Packer uh, agrees. He writes, whether this Greek phrase means evil in general or the evil one does not matter, though the second is perhaps likelier. The first rendering would mean deliver us from all the evil in the world, in ourselves and other men, in Satan and his hosts. The second rendering would mean deliver us from Satan who seeks our ruin and from all that he exploits to that end. All the ungodliness of the world, all the sinfulness of our flesh, all spiritual evil of every sort. Both renderings come to the same thing. So the, un- the underlying point here is that the presence of evil in our world and, and within our hearts is symptomatic of the fact that there are forces and authorities beyond our comprehension that, that are waging war against God. Ephesians 2, 1 to 3, describes the state of the world like this. It says, and you, were, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So here we see Satan being called the prince of power, being called the influencer of the course of this world, the spirit of, of whom is at work in those that don't follow God, the one that holds the power of death and power over this age of darkness. This is, this is who he is, cast out of heaven, given control, given dominion by, by man in the garden. 
We can't misinterpret this, though. Paul's, Paul's not writing that, that every evil thing is caused by Satan or that every time we sin that we get to blame him, right? You know, Satan made me do it is, is never a legitimate excuse for our sin. Our sin comes out of, the, out of our hearts. Besides, it's impossible, I have to re- remember too, it's impossible for Satan to be the direct cause of all that we do because he's not omnipresent. He's a created being. He can't be everywhere at once. But yet Paul describes him as the prince of the power of the air because his influence ever since the fall has a cause and effect on, on all the sin, brokenness, sickness, pain, and evil at play in the world and in our rebellious hearts. The Bible often refers to this as this state as being slaves to sin or slaves to the world. Second Corinthians 4.4 4 also says it like this. It says, Satan, who is the god of this world, lowercase g, because he doesn't even compare to God, capital G, Satan, who is the god of this world, has blinded the minds of those who don't believe. They are unable to see the glorious light of the good news. They don't understand this message about the glory of Christ, who is the exact likeness of God. So saying, you know, Satan has, has blinded the world to the good news of Jesus and God's kingdom. This is also why the prayer Jesus teaches us to pray is for God's will to be done, for God's kingdom to come. Because before Jesus, it's not his kingdom that has reign on earth or in our hearts. It's, it's Satan's. It's Satan who's doing everything he can to exert his will and build his kingdom. And the only way we can find deliverance from the evil one, from his kingdom, is if God's kingdom and will reigns in us. And speaking of the side effects of, of the, the evil one and, and of sin, it's not hard for us to see the influence of evil and the result of sin in this world, is it? This, this world is broken, right? We have, we have famine, disease, murder, violent shootings, broken families, death, greed, selfishness. And of course, it's Remembrance Day today. And just hearing about the, the horrors of war, especially regarding the Nazi regime, right? Their, their racism, the, the Holocaust, the number of people killed at their hands, the, the people who died had to die to fight against them. Is that not in itself evidence of the presence of evil? The spiritual reality of evil has a direct cause and effect with the physical world. The world, the world is broken because of sin. But fortunately, we have a God who opposes it who hates it and even in the midst of evil has the divine and sovereign ability to use it for good. You know, just as, as, as Joseph, when we read in the Old Testament, as, as Joseph declared to his, his brothers who, who sold him into slavery, right, and end up being saved by him along with all of Israel because Joseph now sat at the right hand of the throne of Egypt and his brothers recognize him and, and they're repenting at his feet, saying, sorry, we sold you into slavery. But this is what he says to them, Genesis 50, verse 20. He says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So God has is, God is the ability and the sovereignty to turn to turn evil on its head 
right, in order to amplify and display his, his holiness and his grace and his justice and his mercy and his compassion and his goodness. Even after Adam and Eve turned from God and their sin, still he made a loving promise to, to crush Satan and deliver mankind from the evil effects of that sin. And we know as Christians, we know that Jesus is the fulfillment of that promise. That even though the cross was meant for evil by those who nailed Jesus upon it, God meant it for good. And it was very good. Daryl W. Johnson writes, At the cross, all the forces that raged against God and God's purposes were overthrown and disarmed. The cross towers over the wrecks of time because the crucified Christ is God's great victory over the powers. So Jesus is the answer to the prayer that he's teaching us to pray. Jesus is the answer to the Lord's prayer. Jesus is our redeemer. He's our deliverer. Jesus gives us the victory over the power of sin and death. Jesus has has delivered us from walking in darkness and has brought us into the light of life and truth. Jesus gives us the victory over the evil one. Colossians 2, 13 to 15 says it like this, And you who are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This Jesus set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So in the same way that, you know, Remembrance Day reminds us that, that, that we've been given freedom from the evils of war and, and from tyranny through the sacrifice of many courageous men and women who gave their lives, so too does the cross remind us that our freedom from the evil within us and from the influence of the evil one, that freedom was won at the cost of Jesus' blood, at his sacrifice. Freedom always comes at the cost of others. The freedom we have, politically, nationally, spiritually, we didn't earn any of it ourselves. It always came at the cost of others. And this is why we pray for deliverance. This is why we ask for deliverance. Because we can't win it ourselves. But when we ask, it's given to us freely and surely through Jesus Christ. And, and this is important, especially for us as, as Christians today, because Satan's goal is, is to keep us from who Jesus has called us and saved us to be. I mean, imagine, imagine how, how ticked off Satan is that he thought he won at the cross, only to find that he just had a hand in contributing to his defeat. Now, and now he no longer holds dominion over, over those that follow Jesus. But he's, he's still going to attack us. He's still going to try to make us ineffective in our calling. And he does this by, by trying to create disunity within the body of Christ. By planting seeds of doubt in our hearts, like he did with Adam and Eve. By convincing, in us, uh, by convincing us that, that, that our desires for sexual immorality are okay. By trying to trap us in sin with temptation. By accusing and lying to us. Making us feel ashamed and unworthy of being God's children. 
or by keeping us from reading the Bible or worshiping together as the church or by praying continually. Right? He doesn't even care if we believe in God or not. He just wants to keep us from following God, from trusting in him and seeking him. He just wants us to keep us being, from being effective for the gospel. Right? And, and we have to recognize as well that, that when we sin, when we sin, as it says in Ephesians, we, we give Satan a stepping stool into our heart. So part of praying, deliver us from the evil one, is, is to ask for God to keep us from giving in to sin ourselves so that, so that we don't let our defenses down. As we talked about last week with praying for God to lead us not into temptation. But above all, let's not forget that because of the cross, we can know with confidence that this, this prayer for deliverance already comes from a place of victory. This prayer for deliverance already comes from a place of victory. As James 4, 7 says, Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Through the cross, he has no power over us. When we seek God for deliverance, we find it. As we submit to Christ, we're given the strength and ability to resist evil. Because Jesus has won, already won victory over him and over evil. Colossians 1, 13 to 14 says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And so as Christians, we no longer walk in the darkness, but we live in the light. We can easily, this is nothing to be afraid of, there's nothing to fear. We can easily resist the schemes, the lies, and, and the oppression of the evil one if we're ready for it. Again, we have nothing to fear from Satan or the evils of this world when we're in submission and we're trusting in God. Nothing can come against us when we're trusting in God. And again, one of the best ways to submit to God and, and, and rest in his protection and light is through prayer. So morning and, and, and evening, we, we should be praying this prayer. At one point in, in Jesus' ministry, after spending time in prayer, he came upon some of his disciples attempting and, and failing to cast a demon out of a young man. And at the desperate request of the young man's father, Jesus took over and he, he delivered that young man of the demon and healed him. And perplexed, the disciples asked Jesus why, why they couldn't do it. And Jesus answered them. Mark 9, 29, it says, And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. So prayer is a powerful thing. Prayer plays an important role in not only driving out demons, but in resisting evil altogether. And this is what the Apostle Paul is encouraging the Ephesians when he writes, in Ephesians 6, 10 to 18, when he writes, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, Put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything to stand, stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. 
In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. So it's important then that, that, that our prayers include petitions for God to give us the, the strength, the full armor of God to, to stand firm and to resist evil, attacks of evil, and also us committing evil, to be watchful for the schemes of Satan. But, but just as importantly, this reminds us as well that he's given us the tools and, and, and the pieces of armor to fight against it. Because this isn't just pr- about protecting ourselves. It's also about being given the tools to, to, to crush it in our lives and in this world. As it says, we're, we're given the shield of faith, not just to protect ourselves, but to extinguish the arrows of the evil one, to snuff them out. We're given the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, to go on the offensive. Or as it's written, to become lights in the places of darkness. And while this is a spiritual battle, I believe it's also one that we're called to reflect and fight against in this physical world as well, in Jesus' name. To resist the, the effects and presence of evil, not only within our own hearts, but in the world. Last night I, I uh, played a game of soccer, as I usually do on Saturday nights, and, and the team we were playing against was tripping us and, and grabbing us and pushing us and and body checking us into the boards, you name it. They, they were rough. They were dirty players. I have a scar on my leg because I got cleats right in my leg. It's pretty ugly. And, you know, that they were dirty players, but that wouldn't have been a problem if, if the ref was, like, calling it, giving him penalties and whatnot. But most of the time, he didn't. And so, of course, our whole team on the bench is we're, we're livid at the injustice. We're angry. We're, we're frustrated. You know, we're yelling at the ref. But I know that's just a dumb game, right? But, but if we get angry at that kind of injustice, that kind of injustice that doesn't really matter, then shouldn't we as Christians get even more angry when we, when we see the real effects of sin and evil at work in this world? When we see injustice and, and pain and disease and poverty and hopelessness and greed? I strongly believe that we should be outraged at it just as God is. And therefore, in the, in the name of Jesus, we should be battling and fighting against it. And I don't mean violently, of course. We can't fight evil with evil, but, but with grace, with compassion, with mercy, just like Jesus did for us. I, I believe that every, every piece of good that we do in this world for God's glory is a direct assault against the evil one. And we can trust that, that God can use every piece of evil to turn for good. Right? But we, we also need to remember that we've been saved and called to play a role in that. This is, this is part of our praying for deliverance from evil. It's a prayer for boldness and wisdom and opportunity to go on the offensive and see others delivered. Therefore, we should be battling against things like poverty with, with our compassion and generosity and feeding of the poor. Right? We should be standing with and comforting the broken. We should be fighting against prostitution and and slavery and inequality and and racism. We should be fighting against injustice. 
We should be battling against disease, you know, whether it's praying for healing or coming alongside hurting families or supporting those researching cures. And, and within the church, we should be doing all we can as Christians to create unity and the spirit, loving one another, forgiving one another, encouraging one another, supporting one another in Christ. In other words, we should be making the deliverance that Jesus won for us at the cross evident in this world and among ourselves. This is what it means to resist and, and remove evil. Romans 12, 20 to 21 says this. To the contrary, if, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by do, so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. And this is, this is the verse we need to remember. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Do not, be, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. When I was at my uh, kids' school this Friday for their Remembrance Day ceremony, there was a group of kids and, and one teacher that all shared their personal stories about immigrating into Canada. And of course, there were a couple of kids sharing that, that uh, had come from war-torn or poverty-ridden countries. And one of them proclaimed at the, at the end of his story, he said, I love living in Canada. And it, it's kind of shocking because I had to kind of resist the tears. It was cheesy, but I had to resist the tears that were forming in my eyes. Just thinking about the, the freedom that I take for granted every day. And that, but that freedom at the same time is a perfect picture and, and reality of glorious deliverance from fear and evil for this young child. And it made me think as a Christian, so let me ask you, you know, how often do we take our deliverance for granted as Christians? When the enemy still prowls around like a lion, devouring and scheming, and we're like, I'm saved, so I'm good. But no, we're not. We're still in a battle. Sin and death still has a, has a hold on this world and, until Jesus comes again. And in the meantime, we need to wake up. We should be on the front lines in this battle. And, and again, every time we do good, every, every time we stand up to the advance of Satan, they're not only direct assaults against him, but it's also an opportunity for us to display and proclaim to the world the deliverance we've been given in Christ. The deliverance the world really needs to hear about. Deliverance from the weight of their sin and death. Deliverance from darkness into light. So to pray against the evil one is to bring the light of Christ into these places of darkness. The dark parts of our hearts, absolutely, but also the dark places of this world. And in my opinion, that's why this is a perfect ending to the Lord's Prayer. This is a perfect ending to the Lord's Prayer. And, and traditionally, we, the Lord's Prayer ends like this. We all probably recognize this. Traditionally, it ends, for yours is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever. Amen. That's how we traditionally end the Lord's Prayer. But it's not in your Bibles, because most scholars think that this verse was added later on through tradition. 
tithes. And it isn't what Jesus taught. Though I'd argue it's not wrong to pray that because it's biblically, you know, theologically correct. But it's probably not what Jesus taught at that moment. But it's what most of us are used to, right? So at first, as I was studying the Lord's Prayer, for me it sounded kind of abrupt to end the prayer with this plea for deliverance from evil. It's like, and deliverance from the evil one. And then it ends. It's kind of, it kind of feels abrupt. But after studying it more, I like that the ending is about deliverance. Because isn't that exactly what the whole story of Scripture is about? And how it all ends when Jesus returns? Think of it, the whole Old Testament details one story after another of God delivering his people from evil. From the evil of their own ways, from evil nations, from evil kings, from slavery, from war, from themselves. And each and every story of, of, that, of that temporal deliverance, of those temporal deliverances that we read in the Old Testament, they're all pictures of the true and eternal deliverance that was to come. And that's God's first promise to Adam and Eve, right? To deliver them from their sin and crush Satan. That was finally won at the cross. So again, the whole, the whole Bible is about the story of redemption from evil. From our sin and from the, from the dominion of the evil one. And, 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 and as we can read in Revelation, this deliverance will be fully realized once and for all. Satan will be crushed. Evil will be thrown out of heaven and out of earth and, and into hell by the power of the blood of the Lamb. So it's, it's a perfect ending to the prayer. Because it's the perfect ending we're all waiting for when Jesus returns to make all things new. When we finally experience complete and total deliverance from evil. So in conclusion then, hopefully now that we have a richer and and fuller depth and understanding of the the power and meaning of, of this prayer that we've been studying over the past few months, I figured it would be appropriate if we all read this prayer together as the body of Christ. But not just read it, pray it together. And then after we pray it, if you believe and follow Jesus, I invite you to come and grab the communion elements and make your way back to your seats where we'll then receive it together as the body of Christ. So at this moment, I invite you to stand with me And together, let's pray this prayer Jesus taught us to pray. Let's read it together. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Amen.